You're listening to Talking Tricks, the home of amazing stories from magic, circus, variety and comedy performers. Hello and welcome to Talking Tricks, a podcast with us, Kane and Abel, two magicians with the exact same voice. And we have one hell of an episode for you this week with a fantastic magician, Chris Dugdale, joins us in a moment. Now I should just mention before we get into it with Chris Dugdale that I met him at the Edinburgh Festival Fringe in, I believe we're in John Lewis, in the coffee shop. I was having a coffee, he was having a sparkling water. Uh, where were you, Kane? Why, weren't you, why didn't you do this interview with me? Was this our last day off that you met him? I believe it was, yeah. I went on, I had a business meeting myself actually, which I didn't take the voice recorder with me because we've only got the one of them. So obviously our listeners won't be able to hear the business meeting I had with um, celebrity lighting designer Tom Kitney. Right, you and Tom Kitney had a business meeting. I wonder where that took place. Your office or his? Uh, we, I think we went to um, the pub, actually. Um, yeah, a nice pub. I can't remember the name of it. It was a little bit old-worldy, a little bit old man. It was a little bit out of Edinburgh, so it kind of felt like you were away from the festival for a little bit of time, yeah? We um, had a few drinks and talked about lights. It's funny you should mention that, Kane, actually, because we have had some listener mail some listener mail this week so so more than more than one piece of mail a piece of listener mail and it comes from someone and they've said they're concerned that ed k might have a problem with alcohol no not at all i got no problem with any alcohol at all obviously i'm a beer drinker we all know that, but I'm happy to drink ciders. You know, if I'm out for dinner with people and they're like, should we get a bottle of wine? I've got no problem drinking wine, so I'm happy drinking wine. Spirits, I quite like to drink them all, really. Yeah, so I would say quite confidently to our um, worried listener, don't worry. I have no problem drinking any alcohol whatsoever. Right, now I don't, because obviously I'm not impartial here. I, I must take Kane's sign on a lot of things, but I don't want to leave this unturned. Kane, have you said anything online or in person to anyone that might highlight you having a problem with any particular alcohol? Not as far as I know. You know, I may, might have once said, oh, got a gig tomorrow. Let's not do the absinthe tonight. Right. You know, I might have said that once or twice to uh, future guest Paul Nathan. Right, so we may have upset absinthe, so if you just do a quick apology so that we know you don't have a problem with absinthe or any other alcohol, and then we're good to get in it with Chris Dugdale. Better idea. Why don't I just go go to the pub now? Yep. Drink some absinthe. Okay, maybe put a little picture up online. Yep. And that's it, all rosy, everything done, sorted, no problems. That sounds great. So Ed Kane's going to go drink an absinthe to our listener who thought Kane might have a problem with alcohol. He does not. And we are now going to get in it now on Talking Tricks with Chris Dugdale. During this conversation, we are going to mention Chris's book. And 
we couldn't say too much on the book because it hadn't been released but it has been released now so I just want to very quickly flag off a few things with the book. The book is called XYA and you can purchase this at www.xyabook.com it sounds amazing it's a fantastic textbook for all magicians and actually I think any performer you will get a lot from this book. It's got 25 magic routines, 6 essays from Chris's decades worth of experience in the industry. He shares his advice and knowledge. There's only 250 produced and you can only buy them at www.xyabook.com. So check that out and we'll get into it now with Chris Dugdale. The number one podcast for great stories from the world of magic, circus, comedy and variety. You're listening to Talking Tricks. To kick us off now, we are sat in John Lewis having a coffee. Joining me is a man who's performed for royalty, both rock and monarchy. He's performed in numerous countries all over the world, yet every August he still comes back to a rainy, drizzly Edinburgh. To kick us off, Chris, I want to talk about your whole life, if that's sure, not too much, sure. and your career, what we've got coming up. But firstly, what brings you back to Edinburgh every year? Do you know what? I, I asked myself the same question when I got off the plane and have experienced nothing but rainfall. I love it here. It's something that, that touches your soul here that, that, that you don't find in other places. And I think with all the PC stuff going on in the world, it's one of the few bastions of society where you can truly freely express artistically what you want to do without many constraints if any and uh, that to me has tremendous value particularly at this point in history and this is show up close uh, tell yep. us very quickly about it what, what kind of tricks and routines and things are in it and uh, how's the run gone it's it's been great i mean i, I that's why i come back I love it. Uh, the audiences are extremely receptive. It's it's a, it's a mixture of my favourite close-up bits and segueing into sort of a, a binary system of, of mind control, which I learned at university. So yeah, it's it's I love doing the show. I love it every night, and my passion for performance that's my number one thing. I just love performing. There's kind of horror stories about Edinburgh. Mm. Coming here, losing money, performing yeah. for free people, and things like that. Yeah, yeah. You're in a in a nice boat, but that isn't the case for you. It's a very positive festival. You, you always kind of yeah. do quite well here. But I've I've worked hard to get to that point, and I've had I've had my fair share of horror stories uh, getting to that point, and. Uh, I really th think if somebody tells you otherwise, perhaps it's not necessarily the truth. But yeah, I came here first year, seven years ago, worked my ass off and lost, I don't know, five, six grand. We bought a show that was doing very well in the West End up here and uh, <laughs> it got hammered. I mean, by one particularly sadistic reviewer um, and that, that affected ticket and I ended up losing a fortune. So it's at that point you choose, do you, do you quit? Edinburgh or do, do you come back and give it another shot and uh, I'm really glad I did but you have to learn the essence of what Edinburgh is how to market here how it's a different market than anywhere else now I'm totally in love with it but you know it wasn't easy I mean we've got almost 4,000 shows on this yep. year at yeah. Edinburgh I think it's sort of 3,500 that have been registered so I would say we're definitely yep. 4,000 yeah, yeah. and, and I do speak to a lot of people that kind of just seem to think they can come up 
stick their posters up, do it, and it will be a success. Mm. Um, talk me through very quickly some of the kind of other key lessons that you've learned over um, almost a decade of coming up. Yeah, yeah. You've got to you've got to market. You've got to go to market. You've got to be active in that marketing campaign. You have to look day in day out as to, to what's working, what isn't working, and what works one week in Edinburgh might not work the next week. So you have to. I think constantly adapt your campaign. You've got to get out, you've got to meet people, you've got to talk to people, you've got to flyer, you know. And now, luckily, uh, just because I've been here enough times, I have a, a following to an extent, so it becomes easier every time you come. But initially, you, you've got to get out there yourself and you've got to give out your own flyers and work really hard at promotion and explain why people should come and see you and what you personally have to offer. And if you're lazy, it doesn't even matter if you've been on TV the week before. It just ain't going to happen because you get lost. You get lost in the thousands of shows that are here. So. And obviously I don't want to spoil the show mm, for anyone mm. that, that will see it in the future, but kind of talk us through a little bit about any kind of themes in the show and the kind of routines that you're performing. Yeah, so it starts off with a bit, you know, I, I love to warm my audience up with, with my, my first love, which was Close Up Magic, but some performers don't know this about me, but I've, I've been really into, interested in mentalism for, for a long, long time and have performed that to the corporate market, particularly in America, for, for many, many years. My background there is with Dr. Julian Boone, who was the, the UK's leading profiler at Leicester University, who I studied under. And uh, using techniques I learned from him specifically and, and my knowledge of magic, that's how I've developed my own sort of branding of, of mind control and mind reading. Uh, he was by far the craziest lecturer in the world. He would turn up in a pink Rolls Royce, quite literally, stop the lecture halfway through and take us down the pub get us completely ratted and then send us on our merry way so he was by far our favorite lecturer he was bizarre I mean fantastic a genius but unlike anyone we've we'd ever met before as students but I think looking back on it it's quite an intelligent man really because in the pub he learned many things about his students that no other lecturer would learn in a, in a lecture hall yeah, it's the eccentric teachers that always got to me when I was in school in uni. You mentioned your studies, yep. going to yeah. university, so I kind of want to get an understanding of um, when you were at university, was magic always the aim and were you doing things that might help your career? <coughs> yeah, 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 I, I almost got thrown out because I was gigging so much and I um, actually sort of uh, had to, how should we put this, um, blag my way to a certain extent uh, through through the, the latter parts of one's degree <laughs> and uh, it was touch and go but I managed to do it. I was always interested in magic, that was my sole hobby, that was my sole intention. Part of my degree was a little bit of a cheat because I was born in France so I'm, I, was, I'm a, I was already a fluent French speaker so I thought right that's more bar time if I put French there you know it's more time I don't have to be in le lectures and uh, psychology was the combination that I was after and that was one of the few places in the UK where I could actually have the French psychology combination so I, oh my god four of the best years of my life I mean just just fantastic. I want to talk a little bit more about when you left university and went into your career as it is but uh, I can't leave the background in France untouched yeah. um, just tell me kind of quickly how long were you based there and are you inspired by all the French great magicians well, there I, I, in the I, blood? Yeah I, it is it is I, I love the French you get outside of Paris they're very nice people I promise you that I've always been interested in the culture and, and also the family bond the family unit the strength of that unit and I think looking back at my own you know, my mum and dad, the way that I was raised, it was probably more of a European style of, of being raised rather than an English style. Probably a controversial statement right right at this present moment, but you know what I'm saying, the family unit in Spain and France, Italy, Portugal is, is much tighter. 
and it's a little bit more open. So you, you, your parents quickly become your best friends who you can ask advice about anything at all and I think that's really valuable. Yes, I am inspired by the French magicians of today. Etienne's a great mate of mine, I, I adore him. I think uh, David Stone is fantastic. You know, I like the flair, I like the left field in terms of thought process and how the fact that they are commercial, but they're commercial in a, a very artistic way and it's slightly different than the American market and, and the UK. Yeah, I mean, it's funny that you mentioned Etienne and David because what I love about them is the magic is so, so strong, but there's a real cheekiness and a naughtiness to them. Which is part, completely part of my act. I mean, that is, that is who I am. And that is what I am every night on stage, you know. So, yes, a strong affinity with the French. I love the football. I love, I love the French movies as well. I've always had a big thing about French films. There's some dynamic there. You, you just don't find it in, in, in the American films. And it's, uh, it's once again, this artistic left field. It's, it's really out of the box, but yet somehow they package that to be commercial as well. And it's a, it's a really interesting way that commercialism meets art and they make it happen and it make it work. But I don't think we can do that here. I, I don't know why, but uh, it's the bizarre, bizarreness of it. So a cheekiness aside, um, does French culture and the history and language and things like that uh, inspire and influence your work? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I've got a I'm, a, I'm a dad now. I've got a five-year-old little girl at home in America who I, I adore with all my heart. But my one rule in the morning is if she wants to watch a cartoon, it has to be in French. You know, so she gets up every morning and now she's becoming quite fluent. I, I love everything about France, really. I, I wouldn't want to live there because of the taxation and because of the red tape for business is too difficult, but I love going to visit. This could be a long journey or it might be uh, a quite short journey, mm. depending on how much you tend mm. to share with us here. But take me on the journey then from graduating university in Leicester right. here to um, living in America now. Uh, there's a lot of things that have happened in between. Kind of take us initially when you left university, were you, were you straight in as a gigging magician or what happened there? Yeah, if I can just backtrack just slightly to 18 years old, uh, I managed to pretty much blag my way onto Blue Peter. And the way that I did that was I wrote to them and I said, look, I'm a, I'm a young magician. I can levitate somebody. I, I didn't have a clue between you and me and the listeners. I had a chair suspension. So nothing happened and I just forgot about it. Then eight months later, that little envelope came through the mail with the, the blue ship in the corner. And I, I was so excited. I opened it up and it says, right, yeah, we're interested in this idea of levitating the presenter. Come and talk to us. So I went in, did them a few card tricks, showed them the chair suspension. And then I said, right, if you put me on TV on Thursday, I'll take the other chair away. Right, which I had no idea how to do, but it won them over. They said, yeah, you're on. Now at that time, going back, there's four channels. This is a huge deal at that time. Six, seven million people a week. So I had to go out, buy a Super X levitation. My pants changed color because I was so nervous practicing it. And I did it on, on the thing on Thursday and it was fantastic. That's how it all started. And the one thing I've learned, the one piece of advice I can give to anybody listening, either pro, semi-pro or, or just starting is, look at the value of the opportunity, the gig, not just from a monetary perspective, but from a marketing perspective. And I'll touch back on that later with Penn & Teller, because I had a very, very strict intention regarding that show, and it, it's worked out very well for me. But I think a lot of us get blindsided by either, when we start off, it's all about the tricks, the tricks and the method, and then you move into the marketing, it's all about trying to get the money. But I think if, if everyone can start looking at every opportunity as a marketing opportunity for future publicity, which can last 
10, 20 years, you know, the photo op or the narrative that can come out of an event, that can be more valuable than any money, you know, in the years to come. So that's, that's a big lesson that I've learned. But going back to uni, yep, I blagged my way through uni, got my degree, got my 2-1. The moment I left, I went to the Holiday Inn in Leicester. I said, right, how are your covers doing on the Sunday? They said, they're okay. I said, right, I can triple them. That's the opening camp. I'm always, I've always been a cheeky bugger. And again, it's just something... <laughs> I, I get the feeling you didn't know exactly how you were going to triple them then, but correct. say you can do it and then correct. learn how to do correct. it. Correct, because if, if you put yourself in a position, you, you have to deliver. You always have to deliver. But then if you can over-deliver on everything you say and over-exceed every expectation then you end up getting work and you do so they said okay fine how would you do it i said right this is how i do it i would dress up as a character that is appealing to adults and to children a gangster magician right we'd brand it i do table magic give kids balloon animals everyone goes away happy so it worked three years of employment from the meeting and we did we traveled the, the covers in the end took a lot of work but it's possible so yeah work out what it is you want to achieve. Big mistake a lot of people make is they try and work forward to that goal. You start at your ideal end destination and you work backwards. It's a big shift in mindset. Um, was the gangster magician Chris the gangster? Or it, it, what was it, the name? Well, it was a horrendous really looking back. It's called the prankster and uh, really, really horrendous. Uh, big shoulder pads, big purple jacket. Cross between sort of like Jim Carrey on acid, I think. But, um, very, very bad. But uh, anyway, you learn, you live and learn. We will make these mistakes. Yeah. I once entered a magic competition under the name Gypsy Fred, and I was a traditional <laughs> gypsy. And guess what trick I started with there? Um, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he only made one performance. I'm, I'm, yeah, pleased, yeah, yeah. I'm pleased to say. I think I, can, I think I can top that. I did a, a Cameroonian mind reader for the young magician of the year for the Magic Circle uh, with an Eddie Murphy style laugh, and it, it was absolutely horrendous. And people were laughing at me, not with me, and uh, I basically left to very dismal results and then argued with the judges why did I not make the final I was genuinely funny and they said no they were laughing at you not with you so but you live and learn how old were you when you were in young magician in the end 16 I think something like that yeah I mean my parents poor things they sat there and it just must have been excruciating really but I guess on the positive side of it you have to have a certain amount of balls to stand up there and do that sheer level of crap. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's the arrogance of youth, isn't well, it? Well, it is, it is. It's the foolhardy nature of youth. And if you can blend that and then rein the ego in, which we all have when we start off, you can make good progress. So from the holiday in, what was next for you? I started gigging corporately. I, I, I started getting into the corporate market doing kids' parties and then doing close-up with the adults at the end. And some very posh gentleman said yeah do you ever do corporate and I said what's corporate and he goes that's why you come along and entertain the corporate so I went oh that's corporate uh, yeah why not I'd never done corporate so yeah let's do that so I turn up do a few card tricks and have a good time and they were reasonably impressed and that carried on for a while and then one lady said oh um we really like that what you did today and um, would you like to come and entertain Richard Branson so that's how it really all started, my, my connection with Branson, which then grew over many years. But he was really inspirational and really helpful to me, both personally and artistically. And by the time, you know, I'd sort of got a few gigs under my belt with, with the company, with Virgin and with him, you know, I got to entertain him and his family very privately. And at the end of it, he just goes, that's the best I've ever seen. And I said, well, I'm a cheeky bastard. Can I have that in writing? And he goes, yeah, there you go. He goes, use it. So once again, 
advice for anyone starting out when when there is a marketing opportunity always ask for help but in a style that's congruent to your own personality so if you're naturally cheeky ask in a naturally cheeky but respectful way if you're quite serious you know ask in a serious and, and, and sincere way I think the mistake of most salesmen is where their style of selling or in our case our style of marketing doesn't align with who we, we really are and then it then it doesn't work so well yeah I mean you've got to be authentic in everything you do whether it's your performance style or your marketing you do and that's the hardest thing to achieve I think because we all go on that curve of you know first of all we model other entertainers which is just human nature then we realize and, and this is I'll come on to this later but I am writing a book at the moment it's called XYA and the reason it's called XYA is because we all go I think through basically the same stages and then at the end of it all, you come back to what you had at the beginning, which is essentially who you are and what you uniquely have to offer that other people don't. So that's the journey that we take, hence the reason for the book title. It can be a long journey to find your own voice. And as oh I said, my God, know, yeah. When uh, my brother and I started uh, our act, our motto used to be, let's be more like Penn and Teller and less like ourselves. And yep. slowly over the years, we, we're now pretty pretty happy that we're Ed and Lawrence, Kane and Abel as we are. Let's talk about the book. I yep. love the fact yeah, yeah. that you're writing a book. Tell us all. I'm very excited about it. It's been uh, two years in the pipeline. XYA is the title, as I mentioned earlier. Um, it's uh, uh, over 25 routines, which are, are killers in the real world. And I know that because I've just done them thousands and thousands of times. And these are the routines that not only get great audience reaction but also help you market yourself to the next level there's a few essays in there as well uh, a few pieces of, of, of sleight of hand original slights and then because I've been a victim of as so many of us have of, of plagiarism for so long I've developed a, a secure portal where people every reader gets an online access and so the book gives you half to three quarters of the, of the puzzle and then the online portal will complete the picture just to, to try, hopefully not in vain, to protect to protect your IP. Uh, and what was some of the inspiration for you to, to write a book in the first place? I think it's what we were talking about before we started the recording. There's too many uh, YouTube clones, there's too many youngsters coming up who, who do not read, who don't inspire and ignite their own inspiration and imagination through the act of reading. They just become... I don't know, duplicates, however you want to copycats of what they see online. And I, I think a book really does open up a gateway of thought to how you can develop personally in your own, your own performance style that no video will ever do. And what were some of the books growing up and when you started Magic? And also, kind of, I suppose, that brings us on to another question. When, when did Magic become a part of your life? And then what were some of the books that you grew up reading and that you particularly love? So... Magic's been part of my life since the age of five. I, I got a magic set. It's the old cliched story that most of us have. Uh, I was interested as a youngster, football, tennis. Mar martial arts was my key growing up. I loved it 12 years, studied martial arts. And then as a teenager, sort of girls overtook everything. Magic went into the background. But magic's the one thing that stuck with me. And I, I think it's that sort of you're, you're very young, you're trying to find out who you are and all of a sudden you get an opportunity for a performance. And the, the, the level of adrenaline, the level of nerves is very, very high. You don't really, if we're honest, know what you're doing. Uh, you stand up there and you do the best you can and people start applauding you. And it's that first essence of what they're getting from your work and the inspiration that, to move you forward. That you, you, become, you, you feed on it. And it's that first taste of 
I guess, appreciation. We all want to be significant, right? And uh, I think as you, as you grow up and you, you develop, you do need an ego to be a performer, no doubt. But the ego, after a certain point, can really hold you back. So it's that fine line of almost taming, taming your own ego to the point where you're confident enough to stand up and to be yourself and to be open in front of a group of strangers, but you're not arrogant to the point where you can't take direction and notes. Because if, you, if you're that arrogant, you ain't going to progress and you're only going to end up damaging yourself. So if, you, if you're a young magician starting out listening to this, I would always uh, encourage people to read Garcia and Schindler's 113 Easy to Master Card Miracles. Uh, it's a great book and it's got all sort of different levels of abilities that you can kind of go along and learn. And it's the one book I always carry with me. What would be your number one suggestion, the reading Bible of magic yeah, for you? I've got, I've, got th- I've got three or four, uh, if, you, if you don't mind. I've got um, the, the Books of Wonder, for me, uh, just... Incredible, really. Tommy Wonder was a huge inspiration in my life, and a lovely man. And to me, nowadays, it's it's something again. We we talked, to, we touched on earlier. It's it's the essence of the person. What what kind of person are you, both on and off the stage? And if you, nowadays, if you're not kind, I really don't have any time for anybody anymore. You know, we we all learn and we admire different things about different people at different stages in our life. But your priorities change as you grow up. So the books of wonder and Tommy was the biggest gentleman you could ever find and that will bring me to Vegas in a, in a, in a roundabout way but whilst we're on this subject performing magic Tony Middleton great book I hope Tony with the book Phil helped him with the book got some great great stuff in it just because it's it's more theatrical it's not all about the tricks Lewis Ganson routine manipulation was my my bible growing up I I, I loved it yeah so those those three would be way up there You've ended on a manipulation book, uh-huh. and you mentioned Las Vegas. Yep. Then speak to us about your relationship with a certain Vegas manipulator, yeah. Lance Burton. Yeah, I mean, my God, sitting here thinking about those days, it's it's incredible. Um, so Paul Stone is the guy I thank for all of this. Paul put on a, a seminar in London, and we all went to the seminar. And during the seminar, he showed us a piece of footage of a of a close-up magician. So me being the cheeky bastard that I was, and still am from time to time, said, Paul, I really like your seminar, but I wasn't that impressed with your close-up guy. I said, I, I think I can do better if you give me a chance. So I said, all right, fine. So Paul, to his absolute credit, called me up, and the next week I was in the Grosvenor House doing close-up magic, which for me at the time was a big deal. It was a huge deal. And it went well, and I got tips. <laughs> and Paul, being Paul, looked at the money, looked at the cash, Chris you had a good night um, yeah it was pretty good and from there my relationship with Paul Stone grew and I've, I've only got nice and positive things to say about Paul in terms of my personal relationship with him it ended up me being uh, transferred to Vegas to work for a certain Mr Burton and those are some of the best years of my life I was in and out all the time of Vegas sort of on, um, on work visas and then they would expire and I had to come out and go back in and, and I ended up doing close up for him and uh, developing the retail side of his operation, selling magic to the public. So when the public came out of seeing arguably the greatest, the single greatest magician ever to have lived, there they saw young, young Muggins here trying to, trying to sell them the Svengali deck and the equal unequal ropes. But um, what, what a training, what a training ground to, to get people to come through that, that shop door and to try and get them to buy stuff that they can do at home. So. I'll be forever grateful. I watched Lance's act probably a thousand times, every night blown away. I saw the good, the bad and the ugly for him, which was, you know, 
the, 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 the one very unfortunate occasion where he produced a dove that, that was dead, you know, and there's nothing you can really do about that during that particular time. But the one thing that struck me about Lance is not only is he perfection on stage, he's absolute perfection off stage in the way that he treats people. He is the kindest gentleman you would ever meet. He is the true definition of a star. He's not a celebrity, he's a star. And at the end of a shift, he'd often take us for sushi or he'd take us down to the brewery. And he'd sat like we are now. And there's no ego, there's no bullshit. It's just plain, decent, honesty and integrity, which I guess it comes from his background in Louisville, Kentucky. But he is by far the greatest magician I have ever seen. Um, I think, I, I can't see anyone surpassing that. Not only in his manipulation prowess and his sheer technical perfection, but his sense of comedy, which not many people talk about, but Lance's sense of comedy, his timing, his understanding of authentically who he is, where he's from, the sort of hillbilly side of Louisville, Kentucky, combined with the elegance of the tuxedo, you know, he, he, he carries that off perfectly. Yeah, I mean, I adore the man, you know, I, I love him, he's great. How long were you working with Lance for and what I think, kind of I years think, Yeah, it there? was over about two and a half years, two and a half to three years, but it was very on and off. I'd go in for a month and, and then leave for a couple of months and come back, And but I always picked up where I left off and he was just always great, great to work for. And I think that level of experience just sat with me for the, for the rest of my career, really, and taught me many valuable lessons not only about magic but about dealing with the public and it's also interesting when you start selling magic when you start selling essentially simple tricks out of the simple tricks what resonates the most with lay people I mean at the end of the day that's all I'm really interested in is entertaining the lay public and so you learn a lot of lessons very quickly I kind of don't want to leave Lance behind because he's you know such an influence on so many magicians I just kind of wonder is there any other lessons that you learnt from Lance or, or any other mm -hmm. stories mm -hmm. about him as a person yeah the work ethic uh, I'm a hard worker I'm a grafter uh, I would work as hard as I have to and more and I learned that from Lance that you know you, you, you put these serious serious hours in and whatever you're not prepared for will show up on that stage at some point. You may get away with things for a time, but if, you, you know, if you're lazy, it will show up in one show or another. And we, we all know that. How to treat people, how to treat people who not necessarily have been kind to you. He dealt with it in a very interesting way. He was always firm but very fair. His level of integrity to his staff, uh, the way he looks after his staff, even after the contract finished still looks after people very well to this day and it's just what you do behind the scenes really as much as on the platform that's as important. So how many kind of shows was Lance doing at this time because you mentioned his work ethic. So two, two a night, six nights a week, but 12 a week, yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty impressive. Yeah, it's epic. I mean, you come, you go, you go to dinner with him afterwards and it would take him a long time to, to, to sort of wind, wind down. The adrenaline's still in his system and you know after about 20-25 minutes he's sort of come back to earth but his way of, of going through that process wasn't necessarily a, a loud or exuberant way it was more of a I picked up a slightly philosophical way of thinking about what happened in the show and what his favourite bits were and he's just a lovely man. Final question on Lance, yep. I wonder was there a one trick or one routine that, that was your absolute favourite that you couldn't get enough of watching him perform? Well I mean yeah it has to be, it has to be the, the dove act, you know the best dove act in the world by far, just the lines with the illusion so he would always spice it up with lines 
and the girl, the beautiful girls would come out and then at the end one would come out and he just went, Mom, you know, like, it's just, it's just you know, typical to him, congruent to his personality and the timing was great. Yeah, I just, I, and the little thing with the, the, the bird produces a, a little bird that then pops up onto his shoulder and I think the bird was called Elvis, if I remember correctly. But his connection, that's, the, that's the, that, if you want me to ask me one question, what resonated with me the most as a young man watching him every night? Connection, charisma. Just interrupting Abel's interview there with Chris Dugdale. To mention, I've had a new idea, listeners. I think we're going to do a new segment because last week we plugged Neil Kelso's I Draw Clouds show and it sold out at two different times of the night. And I thought there must be more people out there having a go, you know, putting on shows, renting theatres. So we're going to do a new segment called Ed Kane's Gigs of the Week. So if you guys are doing anything, send it in to us and we'll plug you on the show and oh, hopefully sell you oh, out as well. Hold on, I'm, I'm not happy here with you shoehorning your way in to my interviews with some new half-arsed... Oh, can we say arsed? I'm going to say us because I am furious. You're getting in here, in my, interrupting my interviews with this new feature. And all you're doing is asking people to send you their gigs. You've done no work. You've put no effort into this feature. Well, I'm not going to I've made a jingle. It's time for Gig of the Week. Gig of the Week. I'm not going to pretend that isn't a catchy jingle. I made that. It's not me singing but I made it and I would just mention at this little point and um, this isn't going to be a, a regular segment um, but I'm actually selling that keyboard if anyone wants to buy it I'm looking for about 180 quid for it because um, I want to buy another a, a new one but I want to sell that one but that's not going to be don't start sending in things you want to sell for that segment this is getting worse and worse by the minute you've done no work here all you're doing now I've made a jingle. You're asking people to send in their gigs. I don't think you even care about gigs of the week. You're just trying to sell your bloody Clav Nova or whatever it is. Your piano or your keyboard. It's a Yamaha, not a motorbike. No. We're not doing this. This isn't Ed Kane selling crap that he doesn't want anymore to free up some room and some money for Christmas for this thing. I mean, you can't just be like, oh, send us in. You, you do more work than a jingle. If you're going to do a feature, gigs of the week, I mean, gig, we'll kick it off next week. Gigs of the week. People will send some stuff in, I'm sure. And I'll do my gigs of the week next week. I can't believe you haven't even got a single gig that you can promote this week as part of your first feature. Oh, you want me to do it now? You want me to do a gig of the week? I can do a gig of the week. I can do one without even thinking. I've got loads of gigs in floating around in my head. Do you want a gig of the week? I'd love a gig of the All week. All right. It's time for... Gig of the Week, Phil Nickel, you're wrong! That's the name of the show. Phil Nickel, it's the name of the person. Phil Nickel, you're wrong, um, is on at Soho Theatre starting on Tuesday the 27th, that's tomorrow, um, running till Saturday the 1st of de December at 7.30 every single night at Soho Theatre. That's my Gig of the Week. Okay, fine, very good. Who's Phil Nickel? Well, come on. I mean, I know who Phil Nickel is, but the listener might not know who Phil... I've seen Phil Nickel live with you. I met him at Glastonbury once. He told me to stop laughing at him. But, because he's a very funny man, on and off stage. Saw a little bit too much of him one year at Glastonbury, in fact. He got his cock out. <laughs> right, just because I said half-assed when I was angry, doesn't mean you can say cock. 
I'd get a pet. Cock's not even a swear word. I had a cock of the other day. Right, very good. But for the people that don't know who Phil Nickel is, who's Phil Nickel? To be honest, if people are listening to this and they don't know who Phil Nickel is, I don't think we want them as listeners anymore. Well, so we, should we, we'll get rid of those ones? No, we're not getting rid A, you can't just get rid of listeners. And B, we're not in a position yet that we can pick and choose the listeners. We need all the listeners we can get. Really? Why not? Like, is, is it not like if, if we were to open a restaurant and some accountants came in and we were like, No! We'll have none of your kind coming in here. We don't serve accountants. Out you get. Is it not just like that? We, we only want people that know who Phil Nickel is listening to this podcast. And then eventually one day, we could maybe even get Phil Nickel to listen to it. We could get him on. Can we get him on? We can have a go. Okay. We'll send him a nice message and we'll say, we'll go and watch the show and we'll say, we're coming to the show, Phil. Can we interview you before or afterwards? Whichever one is your preference. So maybe Phil Nickel will come up okay. on the show soon. But we're not in a position. We're not turning enough tables okay to be turning away a whole section of people talking tricks that's the name of the show what are you on about turning tables you did your restaurant analogy oh. turning away the accountants and i was saying we're not serving enough food well we are serving a lot of food you've got to have pride though haven't you you've got to keep your pride always start with pride and then keep it we can't just go oh you know we're gonna let anyone listen we are gonna let anyone listen because this is talking tricks all are welcome Hi, I'm Alex Obwell. Come visit us at obwells.co.uk to find your next prop. Oh, very quickly actually tell us with regard to the book if there's a release date and where we might expect to be able to pick the copy up. Yeah, yeah. So we're looking at early October, um, subject to, to, to printing and, and subject to, to formatting. Um, it'll be available directly through me. I'm handling all the sales personally. I don't necessarily want it to be a huge seller. I want it to go to the right people. I want to talk about your career on screen and I definitely yep. want to talk about Pen and Telecast. So yep. I've probably never told you, it's the first time I ever saw you. Right. I was at the recordings of Pen and Teller that, that you performed that. Oh, I, um, I didn't know that. I had no idea. Right. Yeah, so that was really good fun. There's a potential TV uh, experience that's coming from you soon. Yep. I know you can't yeah. tell us a lot, um, but tell us what you can. Okay, from Edinburgh, another reason I do Edinburgh every year, you get picked up by many people here. It's the best showcase in the world. So uh, a producer, an American producer, saw the show, like my style, like the connection, the charisma, and sort of pitched an idea to me. And we've been working on it now for five months, shooting all over Europe and Madrid and Rome and Venice and London. And that's pretty much all I can say at the moment. It's hugely exciting. Uh, it's very different. He has a very unique mind, an interesting artistic brain. We will see, Lawrence, we will see. I've been in this position many times before. Who knows where the road ends up? Nobody, but exciting. Great, and you mentioned that producer's mind. I want to talk about your mind yeah, yeah, yeah. a little bit yeah. because you continuously come back to Edinburgh with a brand new show yep. every year. And with the exception of this year, the show is the same as last year, but prior to that, it has been different every year, yes. Yeah. 
Exactly. Yeah. And um, obviously, there must have been a lot of creation going on for the, for the TV stuff and the book. Yep. When it comes to me uh, and creating a trick, I always kind of think, what's the funniest thing I can do? And then how can I turn it at the very end and, and shock everyone? Yep. What's your kind of thought process behind when you're creating new, new tricks? Congruent to my style. And I think you learn as you go past the dealer stand at Blackpool how many how many things you've bought, put in your cupboard and you never use. And that, that should teach us all a really valuable lesson. I think the more you go on in the business, the less you buy, the more you start writing, the more you start creating, the more you start formatting. For me, my process is quite simple, to maintain true to who I am, to get as much excitement in that room as possible. I love the garden path, I love the twist, if you can. Uh, I like flipping things on, 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 on their head all of a sudden so that the comfortable rug is taken away from their feet and so they're not quite sure where the journey's going at that particular moment but within that time period is an interesting experience not only for the performer but for the audience and then if you can resolve that towards the end we, we all know there's no inherent emotional engagement with the idea of a magician successfully performing a feat of magic that that's what they assume we're going to do that's our job where the, uh, the theatrical engagement and emotional engagement really kicks in is where something perhaps doesn't go correctly or where the unexpected happens and then the audience are are either siding with you or they're looking for a resolution or they're looking for a combination of both and if you can then tie that up at the end uh, perhaps bookmarking it to something that happened earlier perhaps as a coda at the end kick a finish I think that's quite a strong format so I look at, at the structure Paul Daniels always taught me look at the picture from the audience's point of view if it's just you on the stage and perhaps consider having two or three volunteers then perhaps just one then perhaps a whole group so change the pictorial structure for the for the audience change the pacing for me my personal style of magic is very machine gun I like bang 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 I don't like a lot of setup I don't like a lot of wasted time I like to get in there and I like to blow people's minds quicker rather than rather than take a longer time period to do that. And I know you often perform in environments where you really do need to blow people's minds straight away. I know you're, you're a trade show magician, so to speak. Yeah. Um, does that kind of taught you about the importance of being able to be like, this is it, very, very quickly? It has, and to a certain extent, celebrity. I mean, I've been hugely lucky to perform for pretty much most most of the triple a listers and you, you know you know as well as i do you got 20 20 seconds to, to engage them possibly possibly less possibly 10 and if you can do that without losing all artistic credibility then you're on to a winner whilst we're talking about people you've, you've mm. wowed yeah, in, yeah, in yeah, 20 yeah. seconds yeah. we mentioned richard branson yep. i mean the queen is someone yeah, you've yeah. you've performed for yeah. it doesn't get much bigger than that talk us through performing for her were you nervous was it a bit weird did she smile yeah she, i mean so it happened really weirdly i was in the, in london in a in a essentially an upmarket burger joint doing a little residency and there were two older ladies there and they were fantastic they had the mindset of an 18 year old girl and they were loving the magic they were getting into it very very loud and at the end they said oh do you have a business card her majesty would love that and i'm like sure there you go and you know the one other lesson that i can pass on is you never know who's in your audience never pass a flippant judgment or comment even though at the time it may seem comedic or strange you, you may be shooting yourself in the foot so i said there you go fine 
So two weeks later, the palace calls. And they said, we've been given your number. Uh, we'd like you to entertain Her Majesty at the Centenary, the Royal Horse Show. The Centenary Horse Show in Windsor. She'll be there as a guest, not not on, on, on display, so to speak. She'll be there with her friends. I'm like, great. So we sorted it all out. The passports went in, the Secret Service do their bit. You get clearance. So then the night comes and you pass through all these bodyguards and you're, you're now backstage uh, in a tent because it's in a big marquee having some dinner waiting for uh, everyone to arrive and I get a phone call and I pick up the phone and it's is that Mr. Dugdale? Yes. This is uh, Robert Stephen Smith here from the RPS the Royal Protection Squad just checking where you are. I said oh, I'm backstage. So great. Uh, I need you to be in the main tent in seven minutes. I'm like, fine. I'm like, this is a bit weird. And then he goes, it's me, you bastard. It's my brother. <laughs> so my brother's prank calling me ten minutes before I'm sending the Queen, which, full credit, I love stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was amazing. I mean, you, you just can't really describe it. She, they came in, everyone sat down. I was doing table magic to... to tables of 10 and then uh, this bloke comes out hey, coming over to the royal table now I've been asking for you and I'm like they're still eating I'll, I'll let them finish the main meal then I'll go don't forget about them will you as if I was going to forget about them so go over there I've stood there around this table of 10 people and there's the queen and all her friends Prince Philip's on the next table and she's yapping away and I'm stood there like a bloody lemon and I'm like, right, what, what the hell do you do now, you know? And I became uncomfortable. So I just, I had to interrupt her. I said, excuse me, your, your majesty, uh, ladies and gentlemen. And I got in and I started because otherwise what was an uncomfortable situation was going to grow into more of an uncomfortable situation. And then it was great. She was, she was fantastic. She's just trying to look and see how everything's done. Gave up pretty quickly I'm glad to say I, I forget I think I was doing a, a repeat card to box similar to this show in Edinburgh now with a, with a very big surprise at the end and she just said it, it's it's impossible like that and it, it was the funniest thing I'd ever heard Lawrence I, I nearly wet my pants I, it was just freaking hilarious I didn't know where to look and she was absolutely great very nice I'm a big fan went to Prince Philip's table and he was uh somewhat the worse for wares and uh, let's just say that every spoonful of, of dessert was not reaching one's mouth uh, instead probably landing on the right trouser leg repeatedly and uh, I'm excuse me sir you, you, you're spilling on your on your trouser don't worry about that just get on with the bloody card tricks <laughs> he was great great they're all great my whole philosophy on life is quite simple treat everyone with respect with kindness but have fun with them Particularly when they're in the private, in the public eye, and if they're, if they're super famous, what everyone's or what most people are secretly yearning for is to be treated normally. And if and we're in a lucky position where we can cut through a lot of the bull that surrounds that, and we can just get straight in there and have fun with these people, and and in turn they respect that. And who have been some of your other favourite people that you perform for? Uh, one of the nicest is Beyonce. She's just the most lovely caring humble really really humble humble woman obviously a great artist but and jay-z's lovely and uh yeah i mean there's so many of them brands is lovely jimmy page and led zeppelin yeah you can go on and on, on. but the, you, you basically find 
the higher you get up in show business, the nicer the person, with very few exceptions. And uh, I want to get a little bit of an understanding of your year. You know, we, we've mentioned Edinburgh, we've mentioned trade shows, royal performances and all that. Does your year follow a traditional kind of structure of regular shows, regular places you're travelling to and things like that? Or is it all, I'm here, here and then I'm there? The issue, so I live in Annapolis in Maryland. Maryland, I've been told not to say Maryland, so Maryland. Near, uh, near Washington DC, it was a place that I, I first met, well I actually met my wife on the west coast, she was a, ba- a ballerina, dancer, uh, but she was currently dancing in, in, in Annapolis and I not only fell in love with her but I fell in love with the place, it's a very European part of America, so I like to live somewhere where I'm not performing all the time, I like to take time off and spend quality time with my little girl and with my wife. And the, the greatest thing about living in, in, in that part of America is you can go on holiday for an hour, literally. You can get away from everything. You can go to the beach 10 minutes down the road and just chill out and uh, be in a different world for 10 minutes. Great access to New York, great access to DC and, and London fly, BA fly to London every night from the local airport, which is perfect for getting back into, into Europe. So in terms of schedule, I have several huge clients that I work regularly for. Another piece of advice I can give anyone that's, that's interested is look at other directions where your magic can take you, particularly in the commercial market. Uh, look at presenting, look at training. You know, these have a lot of commercially viable opportunities. They might not always be the most fun and artistically fulfilling pieces of work, but what that enables you to do is if you can get a you know, a big chunk of money for a certain project, then you can be very free artistically in other areas because it's not then dependent on, on money. So yes, a lot of travel, Edinburgh every year, filming for the TV stuff, corporate clients, training. Yes, yeah, it's, it's pretty full on, but I, I love it. I do love it. I think what would be quite interesting to hear is any maybe younger performers that might be listening to this might be being approached to do close-up gigs and they might be wondering how long do you do? People might be saying can you come to a wedding for five hours and, and things like that which in my idea is too long. Yep. What's your kind of tip if you're you know, going around an event or a party doing close-up what would be your typical kind of length of time? Yeah, It depends on how many, how many people there are and, and what else is going on. You always need to find out, excuse me, what other entertainment they've got, what the schedule is for the evening. For me, if it's uh, an average sort of number of people, let's say 100, 200 people, I'd be looking at two hours with breaks, maximum three hours with breaks, never longer. Yeah, and with breaks, I always put in the contract appropriate breaks, so you're not taking the piss, but equally, you need to have a little bit to eat, you need to have a little bit to drink, as in water, never drink on the job, drink after the job. And then after the job is finished, the job's never finished. That's the big piece of advice. The job is never finished when the job's finished. Mix with the people if it's appropriate to do so. Sit at the bar with the guests if, if you're invited to do so, because that's where you pick up your work. So the job is never finished at the end of, of, the, of the performance. It's really the marketing starts at the end of your performance. We've mentioned marketing quite a lot, and there's obviously a lot of different streams that you're you're performing. You know, you've got your maybe your festival shows, you've got your close-up shows, your TV, and things like that. Again, possibly something else that younger people might be wondering is, you know, do I need to have an agent or a couple of agents or an agent for this and that and that? I wonder, uh, is, have you always kind of looked after your own your own diary and things like that? No, I've I've done all different kinds of things. I was I was managed by one person 
uh, in the past. I got out of it because I was providing all the work and they were taking 20%. So I'm like, I'm done. I still have multiple agents that I use, but on a non-sole agreement basis. Um, pick what works for you. You don't necessarily need an agent. You don't necessarily in Edinburgh need a publicist. That's a big mistake I made, but which was thinking that uh, spending 3,000 quid on a publicist was going to do me a lot of good. In actual fact, in Edinburgh, you can, you can do a lot yourself. It's a different beast up here. As you, as you progress in the business and things get more and more serious, you do want to have the middleman between you and the end client, but that does not necessarily mean that you have to be managed by one person or even represented by one person. You can have many different people who you trust doing that for you. I want to go back to something we only just touched on earlier in this conversation, and that is your appearance on Pan and Teller yep. for us. I don't want to, again, give too much away for people that might want to watch it, yep. and I yeah. recommend everybody watches it if it's available on YouTube, yeah, I'm yeah. sure it yeah. is. Talk to me about your decisions and your thoughts going into that program, because I know quite a few magicians actually that weren't necessarily offered it, but kind of had the right details to get in contact for the show and thought, I can't fool them, I won't do it. Mm -hmm. um, so talk to me through the whole process of first hearing about the show, your decisions to go on it, and talk to me through a little bit about the kind of thing you did, because it was, it was very different, I feel, to what a lot of other people did. A lot of people went on with a real baffling, yeah. maybe card routine yeah. or something, and some people just went on with their routine, their best routine they've been doing for years to, to entertain. Mm -hmm. But it was something that was designed spe yeah. specifically for the show, I believe, and as you say, quite left field. So talk me through the whole process. Yeah. So my whole my whole um, ethos in entertainment is it's better to be loved by a niche market than to be liked by slightly more people. I always knew going into Penn and Teller with that kind of thing, a lot of magicians would love it, a lot of them would hate it. I'd get great press out of it, I'd get bad press out of it. I, you knew that going on. My intention to do it was to completely get Jonathan Ross in a very nice way. And that was all set up in my preamble. So I spent the afternoon with him, two or three hours in his dressing room, having coffee, we had lunch. So he got to know me as a person. And this was all very carefully choreographed. It's just so he got to know Chris and Chris's character. So when the, the time for the shoot came, I don't want to spoil it either for those of you who haven't seen it, but let's just say th things are not as they appear. My decision, my intention going in was, I was never really going to argue with Penn and Teller. My whole bluff, in terms of the characterization and the theatricality of it meant that the irony of it was that they didn't work out the trick at all they, they, they worked out an element of it and they understood and worked out the theatricality of it they did not however work out the method to this day we had to explain it to them afterwards so did i fool them maybe certain parts of it did for sure certain parts that fooled them more than, than other people who were deemed to have fooled them. But that was never my intention. My intention was to get that 10, 20 second reel of Jonathan Ross being completely, utterly blown away. And we got it. We absolutely nailed it. And what people will not realize, you will. I don't know if you remember, but they had to stop the filming for three minutes after the reveal, the revelation. And that was for Mr. Ross to gain his composure. And that was my intention. And the fact that Penn and Teller said that they would love to do 
that routine and their show, that's enough kudos for me. I was never going to stand up there and argue argue with them that really they hadn't solved it because the whole secret really was about the brochures. That was the whole secret. That's absolutely fine. What I learned from that experience is on the night, I felt elated and I felt slightly let down as well because of some of the comments. But over time, my God, it's been one of the best things I've ever done, ever. And, you know, it got me two years of work. It got me huge corporate contracts whereby the corporation saw what happened there and thought right if we use that model but we used it in the framework of our own company and we set this up in this way let's do it so it's been phenomenal look at the value of the opportunity not just in monetary terms but in marketing for years to come yeah i think it was a really clever routine and especially as you mentioned earlier how your mind and my mind work similar with magic because I am always looking to impress the late person. I've yep. got no interest in shocking or wowing a magician. Yep. Um, and I thought it was actually really clever that as a magician when you watch your performance on Fall Us and as soon as we see you in the green room, we start thinking. But yep. for a lay person, and I would recommend all magicians to watch the performance and actually show it to a lay person to see their reaction because it's really shocking because they they've got no idea what might be about to happen. Yeah, absolutely. And the, and the Twitter feed that evening just went mental. It went absolutely ballistic. And uh, the lay people were overwhelmingly blown away. And ITV said it's the most unbelievable ending of any trick ever shown on television. That was another of my intentions, to try and get that, that quote, that soundbite, that testimonial. Because that value now, think about this, if you're just starting off in magic, don't just think about the trick, don't just think about the money, think about the marketing, think about what you can get in terms of testimonial that will live with you for the rest of your life. That, that's a vehicle then you take forward with you which will help you in so many different ways. And I think it, it's slightly sad that there's so much bitchiness in the, in the magic world and in the com in comedians as well that people don't necessarily look at those other angles and consider how it may affect their future. That will be the take-home lesson, I would say, for most people from this conversation. You know, that is a real good message for people to follow by. Um, quickly on Penn and Teller, yeah. having uh, been a Vegas guy, so to speak, yeah. were you familiar with them? Had you kind of met them before, or was that the first yeah, um, that they knew of Chris Dugdale? Yeah, no, I'd, I'd had 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 dinner with uh, with Penn before, actually, with Paul Stone. I had met him before. I had never met Teller before. So, yeah, there was a fair amount of. of prior knowledge he probably wouldn't have remembered who I was because he meets thousands and thousands of people every day but I learned a bit about his character I also learned how he may react to something like that and you know give or take it was pretty much on par with, with what we expected another interesting little um, little anecdote is that I had, I had a publicist at the time and her advice very strongly was don't argue don't don't really get into that uh, the reason being, I'm not going to name any names, but there was another act on Penn & Teller who, who never got shown, who never got aired, because he did decide to go down that route, and he did decide to argue you know, black was blue, and as a result it caused a, a lot of bad ill feeling with, with not only Penn & Teller but the production team, and it just wasn't shown. So then all your hard work is lost forever. So I thought it's better to play it safe on that, on that occasion. Absolutely. Nice people get nice things, I always say. So getting close to time really I feel like I could talk to you forever because well, thank got you such thank a, you uh, likewise I've, in, I've enjoyed it <laughs> such an interesting crew but there's, there's one place you've performed that I, I have to talk to you about because um, 
I think it should be an aspiration of all magicians and if it isn't they probably haven't visited it but for my 30th birthday I went to the Magic Castle. Talk to me about uh, your experience with that <laughs> wonderful building. Uh, it's amazing, it's just phenomenal so the late and great Billy McComb was still around when I, when I first did the castle and yeah I, I got in a little trouble there Lawrence. I got a, a written warning for one of my jokes and it was a very funny joke, they, they, the public loved it every day and but uh, the management weren't, weren't too happy so I had to I had to drop that particular gag but you know that aside just nothing but lovely positive things to say about it it's uh, it's an amazing unique inspirational aspirational place to be to perform to visit to, to, to enjoy to, to savor to taste it's just wonderful the audiences there I've always resonated very well with American audiences in my mind that's where I feel most at home as a performer I've only ever had good experiences in the States and I've worked there probably on and off for 20 years now. Going through the Outstanding in the Arts Visa Programme, which is the O-1 Visa, if anyone's interested in looking into that, it could be helpful to eventually get the green card. I just feel very, very welcome there. I feel they're very warm. I feel they're very receptive. I feel in North America, currently speaking, there's probably, I don't know, three, four English guys, probably. So we have a good niche of that market. We've got a good USP. The danger there is that you can get lost because it's so big. But uh, I, I love living there. I love performing there. The Magic Castle, they gave me an open invitation. Whenever you want to go back, I can go to perform. So it's great. And one of my, my personal goals this year is to actually become a member member there because you know, I, just, I just love the place. And it's also where I met my wife. I... I between you and me, I actually met my wife outside a sex shop on Hollywood Boulevard. Now, if I may explain, it was next to the magic shop, and that's where I was going, and I'm sticking to that story. But where I, was she going? To, to the magic shop, Lawrence. <laughs> to the magic shop. Um, that's where we first met, and we had our first... Well, it wasn't a date, because we weren't dating at the time, but we had our first evening of, of getting to know each other at the magic cast. We had a dinner there and some drinks, and... I was sort of hanging around her dressing room like some crazed idiot trying to, to get to know this girl better and then um, she eventually has become my, my lovely wife. So many, many reasons I love that place and for you to say you love it, yeah, I totally get it. It's just, it's just a special place. It really is and it is a romantic place. It is, it is. And, and, and once again, like Edinburgh, I think you'll agree with this, it's all, at the end of the day, it's all about air miles. Air miles on stage, air miles, you know, how long have you actually spent treading the boards? How long have you spent doing close-up? And we're not talking about in your lounge or, or you know, in front of your, 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 your camera. It's in front of real people. We can all be legends in our own living room. At the end of the day, it means absolutely nothing. So to, to an aspiring performer, would, you, would, you, would I work the Magic Castle again? Yeah, a hundred times, a million times. I love it, I love it, I love it. You get to do how many shows a night? Three shows a night? Seven nights a week? 21 shows? Edinburgh, you get to do an hour long show for how many? 28, 28 days? So, you know, you start working that over seven years, you spent three or four days of your entire life on stage. That experience is invaluable. So get out there and do it. Jeffrey Durham always taught me there's a big difference between practice and rehearsal. You practice at home and then you rehearse. And it's a very different process. But then, sooner or later, you've got to, you've got to, you've got to just get out there and do it. And it's not the end of the world if it screws up. You know, we're not the president of America. We're not brain surgeons, you know, but do your best to make it clean. You know, I have a big thing about that. I have a big problem in magic when I see untidy work. 
because the lay people may not know exactly what's happened, but they realise something's gone on, and then for them the mystery is lost. You know, their false explanation might might be correct, might be incorrect. But uh, you know, work hard on your technique and work hard on your in your presentation. Combine the two, and that for me is is, is how you progress. Final question. Yo. you've got an enviable CV. Thank you. Um, to to all magicians, Thank I would you. imagine. What's left for you that you want to achieve? It's a really good question. Uh, the TV series I'm currently working on, that I want to see that flourish. I want to see it go, uh, grow in the way it can. I would like to come back to Edinburgh with that under my belt and to do bigger venues. I have played all kinds of venues at Edinburgh, from the, the big sort of 300-seaters to, to what I'm in now, which is about 100 or something like that. Depends on your style of show. I would like to do just basically more television, more theatre, really, but spend more time with the family, spend more time creating slightly less time traveling just enjoying life you know my, my whole life just to wrap this up my whole life changed when I lost my dad seven years ago to a brain tumor it was the hardest thing I've ever gone through I uh, almost didn't make it mentally the other side you know uh, I went for counseling for four or five months at the hospice where he passed away he was my best friend he was my inspiration every night I went to bed he told me there's no such thing as can't and that message is the message I want to leave you guys with if you work hard there is no such word as can't. What a touching and in memory of your dad, Chris. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Talking Tricks with Caden Abel. Please rate, review and subscribe to the podcast.